Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Sanhedrin, the courts, the Ho'enshin Hamasudim Lohem, and the punishments handed over to the courts to enforce the law, continuing with Pedic Shvi, chapter 7. Earlier, we learned various scenarios of courts. This guy says, I want to bring this to court locally. This guy says, I want to go to Jerusalem, to the Supreme Court, to the Sanhedrin. Now we learn a different scenario, and I'll tell you, by means of introduction, by way of introduction, the magic modern word for this in halacha, it's called zablo. English, Z-A-B-L-A. Zabla is an acrostic in Hebrew. Zayin, Bet, Lamid, Aleph, Zabla. What does Zabla stand for? It stands for four Hebrew words. Ze, Borer, Lo, Echad. Ze, Borer, Lo, Echad. One side chooses one judge and says, this judge, this rabbi, this scholar, he's my man. I'm going to pick Moshe as my judge. The other guy says, ha, you're going to pick Moshe, I'm going to pick Yaakov as my judge. And then Moshe appointed by litigant A, Yaakov appointed by litigant B, they both choose someone that they feel would be a good third judge, because after all, it's the third judge that's going to have the final say, because majority rules, you need two against one minimum. And that's how you do a Din Torah, that's how you do a Torah law. This is the most common thing done today in Din Torah. I pick my judge, you pick your judge, the two appointed judges pick a third judge. So that way, you're not going to three strangers. Now, we have to point out, I have to point out, we must point out that we're not talking about lawyers. We're talking about judges. Except that the judge also, naturally, will be more leaning towards the guy who appoints him. But he's a fair judge who can see the other side as well, and he's an honest judge. That's the best system proven to work in Bedin in courts, in Jewish courts. And here the Rambam gives the building of how this comes about. Aleph echad mi baladinim, one of the litigants, Sha'amaru says, Ish plaini yodinli, I want so and so to be my man. He should be my judge. The Omar baladinim, the other litigant says, plaini yodinli, I'll pick so and so. One picks Moshe, the other picks Yaakov. Hare elu shnei now we have two judges. Where one was chosen by one litigant, the other was chosen by the other litigant, and another expression of this system, it's called borer, choosing, or breda, the act of choosing. The two of them picked the third judge. And very often it could take months because the two judges are fighting about who's an acceptable third judge. Because the third judge, he's the man. So they usually pick someone extremely smart, extremely wise, extremely God-fearing. And these three judges become the court of three who will rule.
Why is this such a good idea? Because this brings about the greatest chance of having an honest verdict. Because we have one judge who's really concerned with litigant A, because he was appointed by him. But he's still God-fearing, and he could see the other side of the story. The other judge who's really concerned with litigant B, but he's God-fearing, he could see the other side of the story. And then they have both agreed to the third judge who will probably make the decision. Even if one of the two judges chosen by the litigants is a great scholar and he's ordained from rabbi to rabbi going back to Moses, he cannot coerce his litigant, the other guy, to agree to have this one brilliant guy be the judge but the litigant has a right to choose someone just as you had the right to choose someone. You can't force someone to go to this and this person even though he's the most reputable guy in the world. I have a right to choose my man as well. Bayes, now we're talking about the litigants choosing someone. Misha of Apostle. What if one of the litigants except someone who's not traditionally kosher because he's related or because legally he's unfit to be a witness or a judge. And he picks him and chooses him, either to be a judge or to be a witness. Even if he accepted one of the people who were unfit because of sin, like two kosher witnesses, to testify, or like three members of a court to judge him, even if, whether he agreed to lose his rights and to withdraw his position because of what they say, or he accepts everything his fellow litigant will bring about through this guy. In other words, one of the litigants accepted a judge or a witness that Torah says he shouldn't have accepted. And the other guy agrees. So everybody agrees. If they accept by virtue of an act of acquisition called a kinyan, lifting a handkerchief or what have you, they can no longer retract. Because the Kenyan is something that is a permanent thing. If they did not make a Kenyan, he can retract. Until the final verdict is issued. What's the final verdict we learned earlier? Go pay him now. That's the final verdict. If the final verdict has been issued, and they had the money, actually transferred from litigant A to litigant B by this guy's testimony or by this guy's judgment. Now it's too late. Why? Because everybody agreed to accept this guy, Iquar Pascual, and so on and so forth. Now, if you don't know what we're talking about, let me tell you an example of what we're talking about. What if I have an issue with somebody and... I say, you know what? You know who I think the judge should be? The judge should be my father of blessed memory during his lifetime. 
My father was a very, very smart man. He was a very honest man. He was a very, as we say in Yiddish, everybody respected him, everybody liked him. The other guy says, your father? I trust him. So we both agreed that my father should be the judge. Why? Because he's a good man. That's an example of how a relative could be picked to be a judge when by total law, anyone could say, your father? Are you crazy? I'm giving you an example of how this could be. Okay. By the way, my father intentionally did not involve himself in the world of Bedin. He didn't find that it was the best way to spend his time. He always preferred putting on film with the Jew and reaching out and teaching and inspiring rather than being a judge. It was not his specialty. He left it for the judges. Okay. Maybe that's why somebody would want him, because he didn't do it. If somebody was obligated to take an oath in court. Now, how does an oath work? We learned extensively earlier. The person is forced to come to court to take a holy object like a Torah scroll or sometimes for a God-fearing person a pair of film. And he says, I swear in the name of God that I didn't collect, that I did collect, that I took, that I didn't take. That's a very serious thing. Or even a rabbinic oath where you don't have to hold the Torah scroll. You still take a serious oath. What if he said, listen, you don't need to swear in the name of God. I have a better idea. And a lot of people talk like this. He Swear to me on your life. If you can swear to me on your life that you paid me the $100 you owe me, that's fine. Then we'll see if you walk away or if you die on the spot. Swear to me in the life of your head. I'll give you whatever anything you demand. That's an expression of the way people speak. That's not the traditional oath. But anybody could anybody can agree to anything they want to. Two, two litigants can agree. If they took this technical act of acquisition, like lifting a handkerchief or what have you, an exchange of something, they can't retract. But if they did not do the symbolic act of acquisition, they can retract. He can retract until the judgment is final. What if the judgment is final? It's a done deal. He took the oath on his head. He can no longer retract. Done deal. The high of the shalom and he has to pay. The same law applies to someone who is obligated to take a rabbinic oath. That's the expression we learned repeatedly earlier. Hesus, rabbinic mandated oath. Without a Torah, without tefillin. The hafocha, we learned that the person who has to take the oath always has the option to flip it and say, you take the oath. If they made an act of acquisition, or the fellow already did the oath, he can't retract. Hey, number five, well, I didn't the same lawyers. If somebody was not obligated to take an oath, he said, I'll do you one better. I'll swear. If they took this Kenyan, if he made a formal act of acquisition, he can't retract. But if they did not make this Kenyan, even though he accepted in a court of law, he can retract until he finishes 
the judgment, and take an oath. By the way, I want you to know that today when people go to a beddin, the two litigants go to a court of three, and they take, they accept upon themselves the beddin, the first thing the beddin says is, my friend, lift this up, each of you, and make a kinyan. Do an act of acquisition that you accept our judgment. You, pick it up. You, pick it up. That's the importance of kinyan, even today. You know, at a wedding, we say to the groom, hey, Mr. Groom, accept upon yourself the responsibility of this marriage. Here, lift this up. I'm just reminding you that the kinyan is not some euphemism from a million years ago. It's something very much alive and well today. Because in halacha, it's a very powerful thing. In our world of the secular Western world, we're not that familiar with kinyan. But kinyan is a powerful Jewish act of acceptance of obligation. That's just parenthetical. Okay. Vov, mission is chayibbezn. If somebody was found culpable, liable, obligated in court, and the judge says, yup, you have to pay him a million dollars. And then, what they call in the, in the uh, world of Perry Mason, a ninth inning witness pops up from nowhere. And he says, hey, I have proof. And it was already past judgment, post-judgment. But a new fact has emerged. A surprise witness, surprise to everybody. It undoes, it contradicts, it rescinds the judgment. And a new trial starts. What do you mean? The trial's over. But he has new facts. A new fact is a new fact. I guess in today's world it would be a form of an appeal. And what if the judges say, listen, any proof that you have, we'll give you 30 days. You got 30 days. If March 1st comes and you don't bring your proof, it's over. Even though he comes with this new information just released by the CIA, it rescinds and undoes and reverses the whole judgment. Why? The litigant can say, hey, mister, the court told you you have 30 days. Now it's 31 days. He says, Mayasa, what should I do? I didn't have this information within 30 days. And now this powerful, earth-moving information, life-changing information came about. I found it after 30 days. As they used to say in Newark when I was a kid, do me something. But if the guy knew the facts, but he was just concealing it for whatever reason, said he does not undo or rescind the whole judgment. Ketzat, for example, Amrulay, they said to him, Hey, mister, you have witnesses. Omar, he says, I have no witnesses. Yeshcharaya, proof you have. You have any documents? Amari says, I have nothing. Vunished. 
So they judged him, the court of three, and they found him culpable, liable, obligated. Well, you know what? Once he saw that they found against him, Omar, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Kirmu, plainly, plainly bring Mr. A and Mr. B, they can testify. He opens up his attache case, or as one of my kids used to say when they were little, his anti-she case. And he brings a whole document. Ain't ze klum, it's gunisht, it's nada. Ve'en al edav al and we don't care about his witnesses, we don't care about his proof, because he should have presented it earlier, it was available. Why he chose not to, we don't know. When does this apply? And he had the proof, he had the document, or the witnesses were in town. But he said, I have no witnesses, I have no proof. And afterwards, witnesses showed up from overseas. They were on the big island in Hawaii, or they were vacationing in the Ukraine. Or another situation is they had that special case where their father kept all of his legal documents which was stored with someone else who was not around. That satchel or bozout and suddenly the guy shows up he says, ah, now I have the documents. He can now cause the ruling to be reversed, rescinded, and start all over. You might ask, why? Because he can argue and say, the fact that I said I have no witnesses and I have no proof, because I didn't have them. I didn't say they don't exist anywhere in the world. I said, I have no access to them. What should I do? And as long as he can argue and say, the fact that I said I have no witnesses and I have no proof, it's not that they don't exist, but it's that I didn't have access to them. And that makes sense, because he's now clarifying his statement. Or he can give any logical explanation as to what he meant when he said, I have no witnesses or I have no proof. And there was substance in his argument. So it's not a closed deal. And he can now cause the judgment to be reversed and rescinded. Therefore, if he specified and said, listen, I want you to know I have no witnesses. I never had and I never will have. Not here, not across the sea. I have no documents. Not in my possession. Not in anybody else's possession. And then next week he says, whoops! Look what just showed up. Because he made that damaging statement, he can no longer go and rescind it. Bamed, Varamamurim in 9, he qualifies that. Check. And he says, when does this apply? With an adult who was held liable, and brought proof, and brought witnesses, after he made a statement that he has no proof and he has no witnesses. But if there's an heir, 
who was a minor, a child, when the person from whose he's inheriting passed on, he was a child, he was just a kid. He was nine years old. And then there were arguments that came from the estate after he became an adult and they challenged his right to inherit. Now he's 13 or 15 or 18. The Yomar, and he said, listen, what should I do? I have no witnesses. I have no proof. I don't know. I was nine years old. What do you want from me? After he came out of the court and he was found obligated, in other words, they want him to pay part or all of his estate that he inherited when he was nine years old because there was new proof brought against him. There were some strange Jews who came up to him in front of Starbucks or Coffee Bean and they said, Listen, we are friends of your father of blessed memory. We have information. We can testify. We have documentation where you can reverse the ruling of this court. The guy who challenged you, bad man, or he doesn't know the facts. Omar Leechad, or one of these people said, Listen, your father, or whoever's estate he inherited, gave us these documents. So this is new stuff, just revealed, and this guy was nine years old, this guy was a baby. Not like he was an adult and he says, I have nothing. He was a child when it happened, and now that he's an adult, he says, I have nothing. He can reintroduce this evidence or testimony. Why? Because at the time of the division of the inheritance, he was a child. Because a child who is the heir doesn't know all the details of every argument of the estate from whom he's inheriting. You are the final paragraph of chapter 7. What if a symbolic act of acquisition called a Kenyan was made and the fellow, the litigant agreed that if he doesn't show up by this and this day and take an oath, his fellow should be believed, his litigant should be believed with his argument, he should take everything that he argued without an oath. Now there was debate earlier whether this is a good deal or not because we learned earlier that this could be falling into the category of an asmachta. Asmachta means some far off scenario that you never really think will happen. You have no reliance. That's why when somebody says, if I don't come by 8 o'clock tonight, you can have a million dollars, that's not reliable. That's betting. That's why gambling is not the best way to go because nobody ever believes they're going to lose. So there was no reliance. So when it comes to paying, you feel like you're being robbed. So here, this is a little bit similar. If he doesn't show up by this and this day, and he swears, we told and he takes. He loses his right, and he gets nothing. And the other fellow is exempt. And the day passed, 
Is this something that we rely upon or not? So he says, in this particular case, the conditions prevail. He lost his right. Why? Didn't we learn earlier that this is an asmachto? The answer is because he made his commitment with a kinyan. Because he did this symbolic act of acquisition. That is a powerful statement that he means it. Otherwise, he should not have taken a kinyan. If he didn't take a kinyan, it's called an asmachta. It's called something he didn't really think would ever happen. Like a bet. And therefore, it does not obligate him. What if he can bring proof that that day he had an emergency, he got into a car accident, or there was a tsunami wherever he was or whatever, then he's exempt even from the commitment of this kinyan, of this symbolic act of acquisition, and he can take the oath, when his fellow brings him to court, as it was before, because it was out of his control, beyond his control. Or anything similar, end of chapter 7.